Gregoire from the Bear Marriage Podcast coming at you two days post-release of our new book, The Great Sex Rescue. Mm -hmm. We have been working on this for so long, and on Tuesday, people started getting it in the mail. Everyone pre-ordered it. We've got pictures all over Twitter, all over Facebook of everyone saying, look what came in the mail, and... Look what came in the mail, people. <laughs> yes, for all the people on YouTube, you can actually see our book. <laughs> the Great Sex Rescue, written by my daughter, Rebecca, who's right here with Hello. me, and Joanna Sawatsky, who is not. <laughs> she is in a Iqaluit, like way on the top of Canada in the Canadian Arctic. She did all our wonderful stats. The Great Sex Rescue, based on our survey of 20,000 women, mm-hmm. seeing what evangelical teachings hurt sex in marriage and which ones are good. Yeah. And how we can do this better, people. And yeah. how we can talk about this whole topic better. I'm so proud of you guys. I think you guys did a, done a great job. I know how much work's gone into this. I've seen that mm-hmm. uh, over the last little while. And I think you guys should be really proud of yourselves. Yeah. yeah. And your daughter. Your baby. And my daughter, absolutely. Yeah, my yeah. little girl. Oh, your daughter helps And the thing women. is, is that, it's, you know, people are... sex lives. It's just weird. <laughs> it's just I weird, know. I know. I know. It's like, but, but you know, it's... We can do better, church. Like, we can present a healthy view of sexuality where sex is seen as a gift from God. Uh, that is a good thing. And I'm just so glad you guys are adding to that conversation and taking us in a much more healthy, holistic yeah. way of looking at this. And, and a lot of the stuff we talked about in the book about the importance of doing things with data and the importance of evidence-based stuff, that was all you. <laughs> yeah. You helped us with the wording of that. And I always like to say, I think two of the funny lines in the book are mine and the rest are all Becca's. Yeah. Yeah, and, and anyone who's listened to the podcast is probably not surprised by that. <laughs> I will say, at some point, my sister, if we ever did a Patreon, that is where my sister will put all of my outtakes, where I'm not allowed to say that. Yeah, she takes out a lot of stuff Becca says, because she's like, nope, that crossed the line. That nope, crossed the nope, line. that yeah. crossed the line. So, you know, maybe we'll do that sometime, where it's just Rebecca unfiltered. Just... I, think, I think we were on a Facebook Live the other day with our launch team, because we had anyone who pre-ordered the book who wanted to be a part of our launch team could be part of this um, private Facebook group, where we just hung out for like mm-hmm. a month and it was awesome we had like almost 600 people mm-hmm. it was ridiculous mm-hmm. ridiculous the amount of buzz around this book but we did a uh, pajama party facebook live where i just read through brio articles that i read as a preteen and i i said something and one of the women in our in our launch group just said i made the mistake of taking a drink of water before rebecca read that <laughs> and i was just like yeah there's a lot of things where it's like oh gosh she actually said that so i don't know if we ever put anything behind a paywall that will probably be one of the perks because katie has a whole she has a file called becca blackmail of things that i said that are just hilarious so. <laughs> the book has been doing so well i think it's it's gonna go into its third printing this week so it sold out of its first printing. The second printing, I think, is now on back order. They're going to go into the third printing. So it's doing really well. Our Amazon ranking has been amazing. Like, people have just been pre-ordering this like crazy. Please, people, if you are going to order it, and you know you are, because it's an awesome book, if you yes. could order it this week, it would help us. Because yes. we're trying to do as many orders, get them through this week as possible, just to see what we can do. Yeah. That would be awesome. So, And we've had so many amazing reviews come through. Goodreads.com has... has a ton of them. Amazon's reviews didn't open up till this week, and so it's populating slowly. But I'm just going to read you one. Yeah. They're all so good. I, and if I didn't choose yours, it's not because I didn't think it was good. It's just this one's like literally the first one that we saw <laughs> when we went to Amazon.ca. But the reviews are all like, they make me cry. They really do. So let me just read you one. 
Wow, wow, wow. Both my husband and I couldn't put this book down. I would highly recommend this book for anyone, men, women, couples who desires to love their spouse well and seek after God's heart for their marriage, especially if you or your spouse grew up in the evangelical church or purity culture and have been hurt by some of these teachings. Whether you are engaged or you want your marriage and sex life to start out well, or you're in a great marriage and want to continue growing in intimacy and digging out any weeds that might poke their heads up, or if you're in a difficult marriage and want to find healing and a healthy path forward, or even if you're divorced and need the healing light of Jesus to touch your broken and hurting heart, or you're in Christian leadership or ministry and you want to know how to better support those under your care, this book is for you, for each one of you. Not only is it full of facts and evidence-based research, there's that evidence-based stuff I said again, mm -hmm. I that so much. It shines the life-giving light of Jesus into the long, dark corners of the lies that we've heard and believed for far too long. And then she quotes Ephesians 5, For at one point you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This book has been so healing for me. As a newlywed, I am so thankful that God used it to speak to both my husband and me so early in our marriage. I grew up in the evangelical church and purity culture, and at different points throughout my life, I believed every single one of the harmful teachings exposed throughout this book, teaching that didn't line up with God's heart and with research. This book has exposed the unhealthy fruit of some of these teachings and gave me permission to question bestsellers and look at Jesus as my ultimate guide. And then she quotes us, when you read something or hear something, you don't need to believe it just because it came from a Christian leader. Look for Jesus in what they're saying, and if he's not there, discard it. God is doing such a beautiful work of healing and restoring my vision for marriage and sex so that it aligns with his, and this book has been instrumental in that healing work. So to the authors, thank you. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for being a voice. Thank you for being so thorough in your research. Thank you for allowing God to use you to shine this healing light of truth into these under-discussed dark corners of our Christian culture. Right now, I'm praising God for this much-needed and timely work that points us all to the inventor of love, God himself who created us to have life abundant and whose life will never be overcome by darkness. So if you're considering whether or not to get this book, just go ahead and get yourself a copy and maybe even an extra copy or two to pass on to a friend or for your church library. Yeah. That's so great. And that's just what we want is to shine light. We're so awed by how many of you are reading it. We have a major uphill climb because we're going against some pretty big forces, but light's gonna shine there's gonna be a tide turning and we're gonna see things differently soon. Well, I'm here now with Rebecca. Hi. And while all these good reviews are coming in and we are feeling really good and we're just so relieved that the book is out, we know that the pushback is coming. Mm -hmm. Because this book really does rattle a lot of cages and we're taking on some of the biggest names in evangelicalism and we're saying, hey guys, we gotta do this better. Yeah. We absolutely have to do this better. And a lot of you are going to hear pushback. Yes, you are. You might be talking about the great sex rescue and you're going to hear people criticizing us. And we know what the most common criticisms are going to be. And so we want to give you a primer <laughs> on how you answer them. Yes. So that you can be our army and you can help us get the word out because we really think this is going to be a transformational book. So first of all, here's, here's something that happened, mm -hmm. which... I think might become increasingly common. I hope not, yes. but I think might become increasingly common where I recorded this amazing podcast with someone I've been on their podcast before lots of times and it was a great discussion. And then he emailed us and said he read the book and he couldn't go through with it. He didn't want to air it because he didn't agree with how we went about things. Mm -hmm. And that's what we get a lot of. We get a lot of, you shouldn't have criticized these people. You yeah. should have just gone to them. 
And you should have, they, they Matthew 18 us, essentially. Yes. So do you want to explain what Matthew 18 is? Yes, yeah, so Matthew 18 is in essence a discussion point in the New Testament where you're told if you have a grievance with your brother before you go and offer sacrifices, go to them in private, work it out so that you don't, you know, go to God with bitterness in your heart. If your brother ignores you and won't, isn't willing to deal with the issue at hand, you take it then to the elders and you kind of, in essence, you don't bring the big guns in from the get-go with a personal dispute. Right. And you know what? We totally agree. Yep, That totally is agree. a great way to run your life and yep. that's how we should be dealing with things. The issue here, though, is Twofold. that this... Yeah, there's several Twofold. issues. The first issue is this isn't a personal dispute. It's really not. We're not personally harmed by these things in a way where, you know, we need to talk about it one-on-one. Like, I don't need to go to a therapy session with any of these yeah. authors. Nobody has sinned against me. Nope. And I don't believe I have sinned against anybody else either. Nope. What has happened instead is... Things have been said in public. Yeah. And when things are said in public, they need to be corrected in public. It does no good for me to have an email exchange with someone mm-hmm. and even for me to get them to see things the way I do. If we don't then correct it in public. If we don't then correct it in public. And that's the point is that this needs to be corrected in public. Yeah. Like if Margaret reads one of the books that we critique in The Great Sex Rescue because our research found that some of the teachings that... Um, are harmful and those teachings happen to be in that book if Mm -hmm. margaret reads that book and her whole marriage she's just struggling and she doesn't know what's wrong and she feels like she must be the problem and why can't she just get over this and then i go to the author personally and i feel all nice because the author says oh i'm sorry that was wrong and we both feel all nice about it but no one actually tells margaret yeah <laughs> like then, then margaret is still out there suffering and so that's why things need to be corrected in public and in the new testament that is always the model always with false teaching so much of paul's letters were addressing false teaching and he yep. addressed them publicly those letters were read in public when peter refused to eat with the gentiles paul confronted him in he front, rebuked him he rebuked him in, in front of everybody because this was an issue that was hurting people yeah but additionally even if we take the matthew 18 thing mm-hmm who is the wronged party? Yeah. It's the reader. And the readers have gone to these authors repeatedly. Yeah, a repeatedly. lot. Several of the books that we read mm-hmm. had anecdotes where the authors themselves, Emerson Egridge did it, um, Steve Arterburn did it in Every Man's Battle, where they themselves said, mm-hmm. we have had women come to us after hearing this message. And... They've been devastated. They say they would never have gotten married if this is what they knew beforehand. They say all these sorts of things. And so these authors already knew. Like yeah. these so people in had essence, already come to these authors. What had happened is the people who were wronged had gone personally. They had done Matthew 18. Mm-hmm. They went to the authors. They sent them emails. They tweeted them. They went on Facebook. And then the authors ignored the person coming to them with the request. And so frankly, it's been elevated to the next step. Which is bringing in other people. Yeah. Um, in essence, a mediator who's outside of the actual um, fight, mm-hmm. which is us. That's what our book does. Our yeah. book did research and in essence is figuring out, okay, so who actually is the wrong party here? Yeah. And we have found that, frankly, it's the people who were wronged by teachers. Yeah. And, you know, the Bible talks so much about how teachers are going to be judged more harshly. And we take that seriously, like, I'll say. Like, I quake in my boots and... When I realized that I said something wrong, I take blog posts down. Y'all know I took a podcast down in October because I said something really stupid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't that I I said something and then I changed my mind. Like I realized it was harmful and changed my mind. No, I said something 
that insinuated something that I didn't intend. So my yes. intention was actually good yeah. in this case. And so just because your intention is good, that's not an excuse if what you said harmed people. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not about what an author meant to say. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's about what, how are people taking it? Yeah, it's how are people taking it. And if your message is such that you think everybody is misunderstanding it, and everyone is blowing out of portion, well, then maybe you said it in a wrong way and that should be corrected or that yeah. should be taken. You yeah. know, it's, it's like the example that I've given before is if you are driving a car and you're texting while you're driving and you hit someone at an intersection because you were distracted and you really didn't mean to and you feel complete guilt and you feel horrible about it, you're still not the victim. Mm -hmm. You did something wrong. You were negligent. And as a result, someone got hurt. And all we're saying is that when books are written without a thorough understanding of the impact they have on abuse victims, on women who are in marriages to very selfish men, mm -hmm. to women who have suffered past um, sexual trauma, who are then told you must have sex or you're not a good Christian woman. When we write books without an understanding of how they're gonna affect people and then, and then we don't do public corrections of that, in essence, sometimes we in unintentionally do harm. Yeah, but and sometimes you harm even when it's not about abuse. Yeah. Like what happens when you just simply write a book and you never, ever, 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 ever mention that women are supposed to feel good in sex too? Yeah, exactly. Especially when we consider that less than half of women are orgasming like all, almost every time or every time. Yeah. And so it, it may not be that it's about abuse necessarily. No. It's just when you never, ever say, hey, sex is for women too. Yeah. How are couples interpreting what sex is about? And yeah. so, so this stuff, this stuff can really do damage. And so who is the victim? It isn't the authors. It is the people who have read stuff and been hurt. And that's who our concern needs to be yes. for. That's always who we need to be for. And I just think it's so funny that people are upset about some of these big name authors who have made millions of dollars off their books already. Yeah, they've made millions of dollars off of books that we have honestly found can harm. Yeah. Okay, second thing people might say to you, well, I just don't agree with their book. Yeah. I like, just don't agree. Okay, you can disagree with our book, but we asked 20,000 women. Yeah, like it's fine to say, I don't like their book. Yeah. I don't like their conclusions. I'm not comfortable with their book. That's perfectly valid. Totally, totally valid. But you can't say, I disagree. I don't agree that that teaching causes exactly that outcome to happen with those women who believe it. It's like, yeah. well, that's our, our research found. Like, yeah. this, this is not a judgment statement. It is. Yeah. And this is the problem is that in the evangelical world, we don't believe data enough. And I so know. if people think we're wrong, then do a study and show it. But you can't just say, well, I disagree. You know, you can say, I don't like it, but you can't just say, I disagree. So let's talk about the study, because that's another major pushback that we're going to get, is, oh, they just surveyed people who all agree with them. False. Actually, False. the majority of our survey respondents held beliefs that we don't agree with. Yeah. The and majority. We, and we couldn't have done our survey if we had people who all agreed with us. Yeah. So the way that, and this is, I think this, this comes from people who just don't understand how to do comparisons with statistics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't compare two groups if you only have one group. Yeah. Right? Like we can't compare people who do and who don't believe the, you know, all men struggle with lust is every man's battle message if we only have people who don't agree with it, which is what yeah. we believe. We don't yeah. agree with we it. We don't I agree. Would strongly disagree. I would say strongly disagree. Um, and so the idea that, oh, well, they were just biased. No. Our respondents were very varied. They had a wide range of beliefs. We had a huge variety of denominations. Yeah. We had huge variety of, of beliefs on everything. And we needed to because yeah. what we were comparing was what happens 
if people believe this. And so in order to figure out the impact of that belief, mm -hmm. we had to be able to measure the people who believe it against the people who don't believe it. Yeah, and so on that strain, we didn't ask people what they thought about beliefs. No. We don't care. We do no. not care if someone thinks that a belief is completely toxic or not. We don't care. Yeah. All we care about is that they believed it and if they are exposed to it. Yeah. So we didn't actually ask, do you think this is harmful? Do you think this has helped you? We didn't yeah. ask anything like that. No. We didn't make any judgment statements. We didn't say in our survey, here is some examples of harmful beliefs that may have harmed your marriage. Which of them do you believe? We didn't say that. Mm -hmm. We literally just said, here are some common teachings in evangelicalism. Yeah. And the reason that they're common is because, frankly, we found them in multiple best-selling resources and we have... Yeah. Multiple examples. Of them. And so we asked, hey, did you, do, were you are you being taught this now? Yep. Do you believe it now? Were you taught it in high school or, or were you taught it before you're married? That It depended on the belief. Yep. Some of them we were measuring if they believed it in high school. Some of it, it was more appropriate to ask if they believed it right before they were married. And if they were taught it either in high school or right before they were married and who it was that taught them. So we asked like a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like there were, there were six data points we were trying to get. Mm -hmm. Were you taught it? Did you believe it? And how were you taught it for each of those two yep. time things? So yeah, I mean, I know that people who disagree with our survey or who may feel angry with our results, it's a very easy response to say, oh, well, they were just biased. Oh, well, they were just... Mm -hmm. No, we actually worked really hard to eliminate... Um, as much bias as we can from our survey. You know, mm -hmm. of course every survey is somewhat biased. That's yep. just the nature of things. The goal when you're creating a survey is to undo as much of the bias as you can yep. so that any remaining bias doesn't overwhelm your your results, yep. right? That's just standard practice. This is easy stuff. This is yep. stuff you learn in your undergrad and university, mm -hmm. right? And so that's an easy little kind of attack that you can make of any survey, but ours, honestly, we worked so hard to make sure the bias was gone. And the re ways we did that was we didn't make any judgment statements about the teachings. Mm -hmm. Additionally, um, we had the teachings dead last in our yeah. survey. So yeah. this was a big one that we decided on. So we started from the, the least threatening to in essence, the most threatening yeah. throughout our survey, because we didn't want to prime people to think about their sex lives after being exposed to these negative teachings. Because yeah. we were thinking, what happens if we ask these people all these teachings and then they have this negative view of their marriage and sex life because they've now been exposed to all these teachings. Right. So we put it at the very end so we didn't get artificially um, deflated Yeah. So we asked outcomes. marital satisfaction first. Yes, which is a nice one. Everyone's like, yeah. oh, hey, yeah, get yeah. to talk with my husband. Then we asked sexual satisfaction. More personal. We were, we were afraid we might lose some people when we started talking about orgasms. So we did that, you know, next. And then we did all the beliefs. Yes. So they had already said how they felt about their marriage and about their sex life before they even saw talked, their first belief. Saw their first belief. You know, that's kind of funny too, because a lot of people have said to us, well, I wasn't harmed by those beliefs and I wasn't harmed by those books, but you actually don't know. <laughs> yeah, because we weren't asking whether people said they were harmed or not, whether yeah. they believed they were harmed. What we, we did was statistically speaking, if you were exposed or believed X teaching, are you more or less likely to have a frequent orgasm rate? Are you more or less likely to frequently become aroused? Mm -hmm. And this is not a judgment call. You don't get to say in our survey, since I read X book, I am no longer orgasming. 
You could have put in the open-ended questions, but I'm going to be honest, we didn't look at the open-ended yeah, questions. Yeah, we, we had 20,000 people oh leave open-ended no. results. And but we, I, think we, I think we had in total, I think of our respondents, I think something like 7,000 actually yeah, filled in the, the open-ended. Open. And we did look through them, yep. but we didn't analyze them because honestly, oh, we need to we're hire... We're going to. We yeah, are going to. We need to hire a research assistant to code everything. I'm so excited Because a lot one. of people, seriously, like we had some that were 2,000 words long. Yeah, and, like, and I mean like we are so excited to look through them all yeah. thank you for your open-ended questions i feel like this is a treasure trove we'll be going through yeah. for a long time but we just haven't coded it yeah. all yet that's so, so if, much data so if anyone comes to you saying like oh well they just you know allowed all these bitter women to spout off say no there was literally no way for any sort of mm-hmm. bitter spouting off of mm-hmm. bitter women <laughs> to appear and, in our book and when, we didn't look at it yeah and when and when people say oh <laughs> but you said that these were the most harmful resources that people named and it's like yeah but that was open-ended too we never mentioned a single resource or ministry nope. in the survey nope the um yeah the only the only thing that we named kind of was in the belief all men struggle with less that is every man's battle and the reason we had that is because we tested multiple variants of that question and this was the one that had the greatest um it just mm-hmm. had the best feedback it had the most clarity because yeah all men struggle with less is a very nuanced concept but when we add the every man's battle which we didn't want to do but we'd had to yeah in order to actually get at what we were measuring and yeah. uh it worked yeah, yeah. And, so that's, and and you will notice that whenever we talk about it, we do emphasize that is what we said. All men struggle with less. It is yeah, we never battle. claim that all men lust. Nope. They said the belief that hurts is all men yeah. struggle, not exactly. that all men do lust. All men exactly. struggle. And then finally, you know, over half of our respondents didn't even come from me. Yep. Like, yes, I got a lot of our respondents. Well, and a, on top of that, that's just based on our URLs. Yeah. Of So we had different URLs for different recruiters, different We had over 230, I think. But it's even better than that because all a lot of the people who came under our URLs for social media were because other people shared it to their personal social media. Yeah. So a lot of the numbers that are even from us aren't even aren't from even us. Aren't even from us. You know, because people shared our social media posts, which means yeah. it got our link, but mm-hmm. it didn't even come from us. So we not only had less than half, we had less than the less of half that yeah. we had. And so so that was really encouraging. Was awesome. And again, the majority of people don't, don't even believe what we believe about marriage. So it really wasn't like that. And again, I just want to encourage you that if you get people who are mad at you, who, who just say, oh, I just don't agree with the research, they just develop, like, that's just a defense mechanism. They mm-hmm. don't want to actually engage mm-hmm. with it because to actually mm-hmm. engage with it, you'd have to actually look at it. And yeah, and so we are going to link. We, yeah. we have a big academic write-up kind of about our survey methodology, and we will link to that in the podcast post so that you can read it as well. But but one of the one of the funny things we find about all this is now the books that everybody's accusing us of surveying only liberals and like, <laughs> like bitter feminists. But at the time, you would not believe how many angry people on I the know. left emailed us saying... How horrible how our survey horrible was. conservative. How we were just terrible housewives, like Stepford yeah. Wives, right? Stepford Wives? Yeah, Stepford Wives. And like people people were accusing us of the opposite. So when they yeah. took the survey, the, the bias that people saw was actually that we were too conservative. Well, and what's happening, of course, <laughs> is you always interpret things like with research, you don't actually know what's going on behind scenes right yeah. if anyone tells you well I know how they did their survey I'm going to tell you right now that they don't because we have not put everything online 
Yeah. So if anyone comes to you or if you read anything that says like, well, you know, we, we know how they did their survey. They physically can't because we haven't put it yeah, up. Yeah, we put our methodology up now and you we can read some. all about we that. We haven't even yeah. put all of it up. Yeah. Because frankly, there's a lot of it that we're keeping for uh, our, our articles for peer review and stuff. And we're hoping to be able to give you more and more the more that we have of those coming out. Yeah. But because our, our subjects were so sensitive and because, uh, frankly, we wanted to be able to make sure the near, that the research was given in a way that was true to form, mm-hmm. we're, we're not putting out a lot of stuff in public yeah. because we know that people are going to misinterpret it, which is what is already happening. Yeah. And so that's why we're aiming, our aim is to get it into journals exactly. and Exactly. Yeah. So those are the four things that we want you to remember, okay? Yeah. Who is the victim? Yes. It's not the author. It's Margaret who it's read the Margaret. book <laughs> and then is feeling like a horrible person. Yeah. You can't just disagree with the book that is based on data. Like, okay, you can not like it, you can make you feel uncomfortable, but you can't just disagree, you have to deal with the data. Yeah. And so if people disagree, go do your own survey. The survey was not filled out by all people who agree with us. No. It wouldn't have worked. Nope. Because it w- we yeah, were comparing we two groups. So not only would it have been literally impossible if it was all a homogenous group, we didn't have a homogenous group, and the majority of people in our survey had disagreeing beliefs with us. Mm-hmm. And we never made value statements about those beliefs. Nope. We never said this belief is harmful, has it harmed you? No, nope. we never said this one's helpful, has it harmed And you? that's why liberals were mad at us because they thought that we believed the stuff that yeah. we were <laughs> putting in there <laughs> when we were really just measuring it. So that's what I want you all to remember. That's your little cheat sheet so that you you can reply if people start yeah. pushing back. But, you know, we're just trying to call people to more. Yeah. And and I do want to say that if our goal is to feed the sheep, to care for the sheep, to shepherd, like to work with people who need help and to help their lives be better, then we need to be willing to humble ourselves and listen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't be loyal, humble leaders and teachers if we're not willing to change what we do in the face mm-hmm. of harm that has been done, even mm-hmm. if it was accidental. Yeah. I just hope that that changes. Yeah. And it, some authors have, that we critiqued have, like there's one who saw what we said and he's fine with it. He doesn't yeah. care. He's like, yeah. teach his own. That's yeah, we, fine. And we won't name because we don't um, want, uh, yeah, like we won't name that guy because he does disagree with us, but you know. Go for it. There's another author, an old... I don't know if we should mention his name. Okay, I don't know if we're allowed to mention him personally, but we'll just say, and then if he wants to name personally, when we talk to him, we can. Yeah. But there was one author in particular who we talked about who has just been such an encouragement to us. Yeah, and just so humble and yeah. really wants to learn and... Um, Genuinely just fantastic, and we're so looking forward to talking with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So looking so forward to it. that's great. Yeah, and that's the example, and I hope we can talk about it publicly, because I, I would love to just be able to publicly... Yeah. Praise this guy. So we're going to, but we want to ask permission first. Yeah. But you know, we're not asking anyone to be perfect. And I said in the great sex rescue, I said, I think it was three different times that I used to teach stuff that I don't agree with. Like I used to teach something here that was totally wrong. And now from doing the survey, I realized that this is right. And recently I even asked for two of my books to be taken out of print. They were, they were my older ones, honey, I don't have a headache tonight, which I haven't even talked about since before good girls guide to great sex came out. And um, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. It's not that I think they're bad books, but in To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, there's just like, I can think of two particular pages that I wish I hadn't written because I don't, I just don't think I had a trauma-informed approach to yeah, what and I, I think saying. what we're hoping to do is kind of print out a bunch of stickers to kind yeah, of Yeah, like, because I have like 150 of them left or something. Yeah. And that's fine. But like, we're hoping to like kind of write out what we would say now and stick it in the book. 
yeah. over those pages and maybe be like, hey, you want our updated version? Yeah. Uh, but that's what we're asking yeah. people to do. It's not something I haven't done. Okay? Because I know it's really uncomfortable to realize what you taught in the past you know, wasn't great, but we're all learning and we're, and as we talk about this stuff in public, we're all getting better. Mm -hmm. Like that's what iron sharpening iron is. And we're moving towards a more Jesus centered, holistic view of marriage. That's really beautiful. And I think we're getting there. (laughs) We're not there yet, but I hope that we've moved the bar. And I think we have with Mm -hmm. this book, but there's nothing wrong with saying, wow, in the last five years, I've learned so much. And I wish I hadn't said that stuff back then. And here's what I said back then that I don't agree with. And let's let's keep doing this better because it's not about the teachers. No. It can never be about the teachers. No. It's not about the teachers' reputations. It's like Jesus said, you who are teachers, you've already had your reward here on earth. Like, it's not about us, okay? It's about the readers. And they are the ones who, who are the victims when stuff goes wrong. Yeah. And we can never, ever get our eyes off of them. And even if it's only a small number who are harmed by something, like Jesus said that he left the 99 to go after the one. Mm-hmm. What we hear so much is, well, you can't criticize that book because it helped so many. Yeah. And, and I just have to say, are we a church who goes after the one? Mm-hmm. Or are we a church who says, well, it's just one? Yeah. You know, and I just hope that we're a church that would never think that anyone was disposable. Yeah. I have Dr. Camden Morganti on with me. Uh, Camden is a licensed clinical psychologist and we've known each other online back and forth for quite a while. Camden's written for me before. She'll be writing for me again. She wrote an amazing review of the book and I just wanted to celebrate with her today. So hello, Camden. Hi, Sheila. Thank you for letting me celebrate with you today. Yeah, well, you just, I loved your review and it was so touching. And I thought, you know, Rebecca and I have been talking about how important this book is and it kind of gets tiring tooting your own horn. So (laughs) I thought I would have someone else on who's read it and you're in this space because you do counseling with people and you help women who are trying to recover from this stuff. And so you know what this book means. Yeah, so I have the professional experience as a licensed psychologist, and I'm in private practice for therapy, seeing mostly women and couples in a Christian um, practice. So most of my clients are Christian. But then I also have the personal experience being a young woman who grew up in purity culture and who grew up reading some of these books like Love and Respect and some of the other ones you mentioned. So I read your book both as like a professional and personal interest too. And so tell me, I know from your review what you thought, but, but Mm -hmm. what do you think is the most important message? If you can sum it up and I know that's hard to sum up, but what's something that we said that you haven't heard said before? I think just the quality of the research was probably the most (laughs) part of it because I've heard a lot of these things because I write about purity culture. Um, And so I write and speak on the effects of purity culture for women and for, for sexual shame. So a lot of the these messages that you uncovered are ones I'd heard of, but having the research to back it up just gives it so much more credibility and gives it weight to see how um, these religious, religiously based beliefs directly affect people's sexual pain, sexual pleasure, um, shame and beliefs about sexuality. I think that was what stood out to me the most was just the quality of the research. It really impressed me just as you know, as someone with a doctorate who's done research before and who teaches at a college Mm -hmm. to see that you surveyed 20,000 people and did these, um, you know, interviews and focus groups and everything. So I was very impressed by that. It lends just a lot more weight to the findings. Yeah. 
There's a lot of charts in this thing. There's, if you're a numbers person, you will just love all the little charts and all the little numbers and Joanna's little pie graphs. And <laughs> so we love Joanna for all the work she put into the data. Yes. yes she's our data person. Now, um, you were talking about purity culture. Why don't you define that for people who are listening? Cause not you and I totally know what you're talking about. I'm not sure everybody yeah. else does. Yeah. So purity culture are the Christian beliefs that were taught in the more in the late 1990s and early 2000s, which is when I was a teenager. Um, And it was very heavily carried in books. Like you were saying, a lot of these teachings weren't necessarily taught from our pastors or in in church, but they were taught Mm -hmm. in books. Mm -hmm. And these books is gospel truth. So when I read um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye and some of the other popular purity culture books of that time period, Um, I took these myths to be truth. And now years, you know, decades later, I've deconstructed a lot of the messages of purity culture. I've broken it down into five of the most prevalent myths and then the effects of each of those myths. And so that's what I am working on in my writing is communicating like what the myths are, how they affect people and how we can reconstruct this healthier view of biblical sexuality without the shame and the harm of the myths. Right. You said something about, and this is what we found for sure in our survey, you mentioned that um, a lot of people got the negative teachings from books. And that's one thing that we were really measuring in the great sex rescue is which evangelical teachings harmed women's sexual satisfaction, marital satisfaction, rates of sexual pain, et cetera. And so we measured people who believed those things against people who didn't believe those things. And I just want to say, I haven't said this publicly, but I, I just want to say that the fact that we were able to even make that measurement shows that we had a broad spectrum of beliefs. Like a lot of people accuse us of, oh, you just are liberal feminists and just interviewed all these feminists. It's like, well, we couldn't have done what we did if everybody had the same belief. So, (laughs) you know, we had people from a broad spectrum so that we could measure people against each other and see what really impacted people. So we were looking at these beliefs, but like you said, a lot of people got the beliefs from books, not necessarily from pastors, because pastors don't always preach about sex very often. And the thing about the books is that it tends to be women who read them. And I think that's why we're getting some pushback from guys saying, well, I don't believe that stuff. Like my church has never taught that stuff, but I think a lot of men don't realize what women hear. Yeah. And it's interesting. My husband grew up Christian, but he didn't grow up like evangelical, like really steeped in that culture or with purity culture, or he was taught, you know, wait to have sex when you're married, but he wasn't taught all the other stuff. And so a lot of this was new to him too. And when I share with him, some of the things in the great sex rescue and some of the messages of the books, he's just shocked, you know, because that's just not something he would have ever considered or crossed his mind. But these are things that we were taught. All men struggle with lust. All men are going to look at porn if you don't give them frequent enough sex. And that was just not even entered his mind. Yeah. We did a men's survey recently. We haven't run all the data yet, but I, I have a theory that people who grew up in youth groups tend to think that they lust more than people who didn't. <laughs> and I don't actually think they do lust. I think what's going on is we're conflating sexual attraction with lust. Yes. Keeping a whole ton of shame on a whole generation of guys that they were never meant to have. Mm-hmm. Well, there actually is research that shows Um, that men who come from a religious background are more likely to rate themselves as having a problem with pornography. Mm -hmm. But when you look at like the frequency and the actual quantity of how much they consume pornography, it's less than men who didn't have a religious background who don't see it as much of a problem. So it really is those religious beliefs and convictions and the shame that the sense that there's a problem, even when it's not as bad of a problem. Yeah. 
Like I, I'm really hoping and praying, and it was really our intention that the great sex rescue is something which rescues both men and women, not just women, because mm -hmm. we're all in this mess together. So speaking of rescuing Camden, we're going to do an ask Camden. <laughs> I have a question from a reader. Um, and I thought this one was right up your alley. I want to start a new thing on the podcast where when I have a guest on, I ask reader questions, especially guests who are licensed. Cause I, I do think going to a licensed counselor is just so important. I know there's a lot of great counselors out there, but the problem is if they're not licensed, then they don't have to follow certain ethics and um, there's not as many protections for counselees. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of licensed counseling. If you want to be a counselor, that's amazing. Please go the licensed route. And so with that being said, <laughs> I'm going to read you a question and then we can talk about it. So a woman writes, I am getting engaged within the next two months. My boyfriend and I have fairly restrictive boundaries, which have been painstakingly upheld, but upheld nonetheless throughout our dating. I always thought that we would kiss when we got engaged, but he fears kissing. He's never kissed and he's feared that it will open a can of worms of sin and sexual temptation and that he'll sin against me and God. He wants to flee sexual immorality and feels a strong conviction about this. I have kissed before and have a couple of reasons that I would want to be able to give a kiss of excitement on our engagement day. First, I love him. And when I get engaged, I want to express that as fully as it as is appropriate within dating. Two, I don't want to walk down the aisle having only kissed one guy and not the guy I'm marrying. Three, I don't want to share our first kiss with 200 guests. Four, I feel like going from side hugs only to having sex all in one day will be too much. The thought of it gives me anxiety. I want to enjoy my wedding night, not have to think about how I'm having sex with someone I've kissed twice before. Five, it feels like a rejection to not kiss at engagement. Six, kissing at engagement has always been my expectation. Seven, imagine getting engaged and then a side hug. Like, that's it. Commit to someone for life and display that with a side freaking hug. That sounds awful. He is trying so hard to be understanding, but not knowing how to compromise given his convictions. This is weighing so heavily on me. I know it's just kissing, but it feels really huge. Well, it's definitely something that they should discuss and they have to come to an agreement together. So just like I, I wouldn't um, encourage a man to pressure a woman to do something she wasn't comfortable with. I have to stay here for this young woman, not to pressure her fiance to do something he's not comfortable with, but I would discuss it and explore more of the reasons why he's not comfortable with it. And um, what's the significance of saving their first kiss for their, for their wedding ceremony? What's, what's the significance of that for him? Or what does he think that will mean for them as a couple? And I totally get where she's coming from about, it just seems like a lot to go from side hugs to sex in one day. I mean, that is a lot. And we know that couples who wait until marriage, who are virgins on their wedding day, don't always have sex on their wedding night. You know, sometimes it takes the full length of the honeymoon to work up to that. And sometimes that can be healthy to mm -hmm. not expect that on the wedding night because it's a lot of pressure um, mm -hmm. after a long and busy day too. So for her, if they decided to wait until their wedding ceremony to kiss, then I would say use that to set realistic expectations for what the rest of the honeymoon is going to look like. You know, if you're just kissing on you know, day one, then you might not even be having sex by the end of your honeymoon. There's a lot more warming up to do um, before you can get to intercourse or else that could just cause a lot of pain and fear um, if you went straight to that. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So <laughs> pretty much it. Yeah, I do think I do think it's really important to honor each other's boundaries. And that's if that's truly his boundary, you do need to honor it. But, you know, saying that he he's just afraid that if they kiss, they'll they'll enter, they'll have sex. Like just because you like kissing doesn't isn't sex and kissing doesn't automatically lead to sex. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who is really, really, really struggling with sexual temptation, that might be a good boundary for you to set. But it's interesting in our in our survey, what we found was that I think the number was 92% of people under the age of, I think we chose 40, under the age of 40 had kissed before their wedding versus 96% of older people. So it used to be that almost everybody did. I mean, it still is almost everybody, even in the height of purity culture, 92% still kissed before their wedding. But I just find that interesting that the rate of kissing before your marriage is lower if you're younger because of all the purity culture stuff that, that came down. Yeah. It just shows that purity culture and these evangelical messages about sex add in all this stuff. That's not biblical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nowhere in the Bible that you have to save your kiss for your, for, for your marriage um, or mm-hmm. for your day. Um, but they added in all this extra stuff and then told us that we were better Christians. If we did it, like we were more honorable and more virtuous if you were those 8% of couples who waited until their wedding day to kiss, um, which then added really unnecessary shame to the 92% who didn't. Um, Yeah. And probably just isn't realistic and isn't necessary to set up for a godly marriage. Yeah. Now, if, I mean, if God calls you to that, we're not saying that's wrong. And I know that there are people who feel called to it, but I think exploring why, because if you're so scared of kissing that it's going to lead to sex, you may not have a realistic view (laughs) of what sex is either. So understanding that can help, can help as well. So yeah, I think, I think talking about that is fair. And then you just need to decide, are you okay waiting if he really doesn't want to, because it isn't good to push someone's boundaries either. We do need to respect those. So mm-hmm. what you said about, um, we think a kiss is just automatically going to lead to sex. I feel like that's another thing we hear is if you're ever alone together, it's mm-hmm. just really going to open the door to temptation when the reality is, you know, we're alone all the time with our husbands and, you know, we're not having sex, every <laughs> day, you know, so yeah. So once you're married, it's, it's, it's not that hard to, to abstain from sex, even sleeping in the same bed, you know, yeah. but, but they tell us prior to marriage that you can't do that or else you'll, you'll automatically um, fall yeah. into temptation. So, yeah, so they should discuss their boundaries with each other, but then look at the reason behind these boundaries and, mm-hmm. and if it's realistic. Mm-hmm. And I think too, being alone together before you're married is actually really important, not just because of the whole sex issue, but you need to know, like, what's it like making dinner with them? You know, what's it like cleaning the bathroom with them? (laughs) Like, what's it like just hanging out and, and functioning like normal people doing normal things. And if you're never alone, if there's always a chaperone, if you're always around your family, you don't always get a picture of what daily life is going to be like with this person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And And then everything you do is like a date and that's not the healthiest thing either. Yeah. Because marriage is not like that every day and you will spend more time probably doing the dishes or cooking than you will having sex when you're married. Yeah. Idea to practice 
<laughs> cooking and the dishes and, and the practical day-to-day life, things like that before you're married. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Camden. And you have a quiz on your website. I know a purity culture quiz to see how much it has affected you. So I will put the link to that in the notes for this podcast and in the post that goes along with it. Is there anything else you want to point people to? Um, just my website, which is drcamden.com and people can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the same name and, um, and yeah, and take that quiz, which purity culture myth affects you to see how you were affected by some of these beliefs we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your kind words about my book. Thank you. I'm glad it, I'm glad it meant a lot to you. It did. All right. We'll see you soon. Hi there. So in our last podcast, we talked about an excerpt from a blog post by Shanti Felton. Now, we just wanted to read this again in its entirety before we go any further so everyone knows the full context. So here's the blog post that we were reading last time, okay? In a blog post entitled, You Need to Know These Four Pitfalls for Teenage Boys, Shanti Felton says this. Her first point is, it starts young. Yes, I knew men and boys were visual, but I didn't really grasp just how visual until my son was thunderstruck by the pictures in the Victoria's Secret shop window at age of four. I like those ladies, he said in an odd tone of voice, suddenly and completely oblivious to everything around him. Their bare tummies make my tummy feel good. The male brain is the male brain from the earliest age. And as I share in through a man's eyes, that means we moms need to know how to help those little eyes be careful what they see from the earliest ages. Now, it's been reported that we were claiming in our commentary that we were stating this four-year-old boy had likely been sexually abused. Now, at no point did we state or imply that anyone had abused anyone else specifically. Mm -hmm. And we are certainly not accusing anyone of anything. If you want to go back and listen to what we actually said in that section of our podcast, we will put yeah. a link in the notes to this podcast with the timestamp. We're sorry if we caused offense. And again, we were not implying that anyone had abused anyone else specifically. We were simply trying to bring attention to two important issues. Number one, parents sometimes interpret what prepubertal children <laughs> say or do in a sexual way when they are not. Yeah. Prepubertal children are not sexual in the way that adults are sexual. Yes, they're curious about things, including those parts of their bodies, but that is completely innocent. It's a normal developmental stage, and we need to be careful not to read things into it that are not there. Our concern in this example is that she seemed to, in our eyes, equate childhood curiosity with sexual desire and arousal. Mm -hmm. Second, child sexual abuse is unfortunately a very common problem in our society, and it is important for us to recognize that overtly sexual behavior in children can be a red flag for abuse having occurred, and we thought that that was important for people to know. Exactly. So that's all we wanted to say on that. Uh, thank you very much. And again, if you actually want to see what we did say, um, you can check out the timestamp in the podcast description. So when we were planning this podcast, I was saying, okay, this has to be the happy podcast because this is the launch week podcast. Yay. We have to be happy. And that's one of the hard parts about um, launching a book is that you have to be happy in order to get people excited about the book. And so you feel like you've got to be excited for so long. Yeah. <laughs> in all of our podcasts and all of our blog posts and all of our social media. This is awesome, people. We're so happy. You should be happy. You should want this. You should buy this. And the problem is this is actually a hard project to be happy about. Mm -hmm. I know you've had a hard week. Mm -hmm. And as we've been trying to figure out how to do this podcast, I was like, well, do you want me to just do it alone? Or you want me and your dad to do it? But then your dad's really upset too <laughs> about some of the stuff that's been happening. So I thought, you know, maybe our listeners just want to know what you're thinking. 
Yeah, because here's here's the thing, and obviously everything we say in this particular section, you know, like frankly, we're just going to be speaking from the heart and our experience, Mm -hmm. and we're not attributing known motivations or like, we're not saying that we know what is other people's brains. We're just going to talk about what this is like from our perspective. Yeah. We have been talking about what has been causing harm for two years now. Mm -hmm. Two years of trying to get the church to see that their bestsellers are harming people. And I'm going to be honest. If people cared, we would not have had to write this book. Yep. If people actually cared, if anyone gave even half of a crap who had any power in the church, this book would have been completely unnecessary. Yeah. And they don't. And, and I'm going to tell you, like, really frankly, because I mean, for Pete's sake, our Feeling Spiritually Homeless podcast was one of the people's mm-hmm. favorites. So let's just be honest about how we're feeling. It is incredibly demoralizing and depressing to see every single day how little people who have big names in Christianity actually care about the people who are being harmed. When we go to people and we say, this book, this teaching harms people, and the, resp- the response is defensiveness and, well, it's not my fault, mm-hmm. then... Why the heck did you write a book? If you don't care about the people who are being harmed, mm-hmm. then why are you writing books? And this is what's so bizarre is people are able to write things and openly say that people disagreed with them or people were harmed by them. People stopped having sex with their husbands. People regretted even getting married. And no one bats an eye. Yeah. And they almost laugh about it in these books. It just, it feels like they just don't care. And... And, you know, I'm really sorry for people listening because it's just going to be really hard to listen to someone just crying for a little bit. But what we see every day is we deal with the fallout. We deal with the ramification of your irresponsibility. If you are doing this, if you are writing these books, Mm -hmm. you might be able to ignore it because you may have hardened your hearts to this. Mm -hmm. We don't have that option. Because we have, cho- we have chosen to walk in compassion for these people. And that is a choice that I don't feel like I made for myself. Yeah. I don't feel like I made that choice. I feel like this was forced onto me because this is what I'm called to do. Um, when you read the prophets in the Bible, where Elijah lies down by a river and just says, God, kill me, please. Mm-hmm. That has been my cry for a long time. <laughs> Like, not literally suicidal, but, like, the idea of, I can't do this if everyone is so evil. Mm -hmm. If no one cares. If no one is willing to care, I can't do this anymore. And the thing is, we don't have a choice. Because the only option is to surrender the sheep to the wolves. And we will never do that. But we need you to know, if you're listening, that we do care. Yeah. And our job is to make sure that those who don't care are exposed for what they are. Mm -hmm. And so if you honestly care about people and you're a teacher who is promoting these things, you have some serious soul searching to do. Because if you care, the goal should not be to make yourself look good. The goal is not to just prove that it's not your fault. The goal is to fix it. And I just don't know what to do. 
I don't know how we're supposed to deal with such a great pervasive evil that is the hardened of hearts of teachers. Because that is what has caused this problem and I, I don't know how we're supposed to fix it. I don't know. And, and we can sound very hopeful and happy and encouraged and I just look at it and all I see is how much lack of compassion is there. You know how Focus in the Family just said this is a doctrinal issue when we came to them saying that women were being abused. Yeah. Like, how calloused can you be? How calloused can you be? Not even a single word of concern. And it bothers me when I see people so quick to defend these authors without even thinking about the effects that it has on the people. Because that would require actual discussion about what we believe. Mm -hmm. And people are not willing to do that. We're not willing to actually question whether or not this stuff is true. All they want to do is stay in their happy little homes of like spiritual homes. You know, like they're, they're, they have these nice little places. They have their fireplace. They have their cocoa. They have their marshmallows. And mm -hmm. so who cares if there's people begging out on the streets right outside of their door? Because they're comfortable. Yeah. You know? And I'm not talking about the authors here. Now I'm talking about people in the pews. Yeah. If you feel that this is just uncomfortable to have to learn that people are being abused and harmed in the name of Christ, then frankly, get over yourself. This is real life. This is people. Mm -hmm. This is real people. You don't get to brush them off as something that's not your problem. Either we live in a church where we care about people or we don't. Mm -hmm. You know, and we each are responsible to help the people around us. And it is so difficult in this job to see over and over again people who choose the status quo with Christianity over the impact of what it does. To focus mm -hmm. on, well, this is just our culture, in essence, versus, okay, but is the culture rotten? Mm -hmm. And where's Jesus? Yeah. Where's Jesus? Because that's, and that's really what we're saying in the book, is we've gone so far from what Jesus ever said. And when you read so many of these marriage books... I can't picture Jesus ever doing what these marriage books are telling men to do. No. And there's, there's just something really rotten there. And it's been really taxing on all of us. We are, I mean, and as a mother, it's been really hard doing this project with you because yeah. I know how much it's taken out of you. Mm -hmm. And I feel badly in many ways that I roped you into this. <laughs> um, you know, this is something that we go back and forth on because both Connor and Rebecca work for me and it does take its toll. And I always say I have a whole basement full of yarn and I would rather be knitting. Yeah. But, and this is hard. Like people think we're happy about this. People think we're, oh, we're just trying to sell books. Look, you don't make a lot when people buy a book. You actually don't. And our royalties <laughs> are split three ways. We're not going to make a We're ton not of money. Make like very much. we would have to sell so many books for us to actually make anything even close to an income off of this. Yeah, like this is not about. No. This is not about us getting rich. This is just we saw people were hurting and we can't. We couldn't not look. Yeah. I do think there is some hope. I think I'm more hopeful than you are. Yeah. In essence, what we're just asking for is prove it. Prove that there's hope. Yeah. Prove it to us. 
Yeah, and the way you can prove it, honestly, I'm not expecting Focus on the Family to do anything. No. I'm not. They've already shown who they are. I'm not, because ex- we went to them with so much already, and they blew us off and said, yeah, it's only doctrinal. It's not about people. Well, it was. I'm not expecting some of the bigger name authors to do anything. But I was so encouraged by how many pastors were in our launch group. Yeah. And I was so encouraged by how many marriage ministers were in our launch group. And I'm so encouraged by especially how many men shared pictures of themselves with the book this week and so excited about reading it. Um, And so many male counselors, Andrew Bauman, Mike Phillips, like all kinds of male counselors I follow on Twitter are so excited about the book. And I just think it's going to make a change because of people in the pews. And it's time we in the pews just stopped giving the big names all of our loyalty and started giving our loyalty to, to Jesus. The, to Jesus. To Jesus, for Pete's yeah. sake. Like, so all I'm saying is that our job right now is if someone comes to you with arguments without acknowledging the harm being done, you understand that that shows what side they're on. And it's not on the side of the sheep. Mm-hmm. It is not on the side of the sheep. Because if your argument is, you know, you're going to make me look bad, not, holy cow, how can we protect these women? How can we protect these men? Mm-hmm. How can we protect the sheep? Frankly, we don't have time for you. Yeah. It's just hard living in a climate in Christianity where the people with power are also the worst offenders. Mm-hmm. That's what's hard. And I don't know how we change that. You know? Because we're small. Yeah. They're big. And I guess it really is just get our book out there, Mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, the more our book gets out there, the more we have to deal with. Yeah. And it's just, it's just this horrible, vicious cycle. Yeah. Because we've made our, we put bullseyes. And I just don't know what the solution is. And I don't really have a good hopeful message of that. I just, you know, this hurts us a lot and it doesn't hurt us because people are being mean to us. Or they hurt my feelings. Or, Mm -hmm. well, I don't agree with you. They hurt us because we are the ones who are dealing with the fallout of the bad teaching. Not the people who are actually doing the bad teaching. That's why it hurts us. Is because these people are off doing whatever they want. Saying whatever they want. Spouting off whatever they want without having any outside influence telling them you have to be careful. Without any accountability at all. Mm -hmm. And we are the ones who are picking up the pieces of what they're doing Mm -hmm. and how do you live with that how do you live your whole life knowing they're never going to change they're never going to stop hurting people how do you do that i don't know i guess we're finding out i guess we're living it so that's what we're dealing with that's what we're thinking and we really really covet your prayers we really appreciate and need your prayers and your encouragement your emails your pictures with the book you buying the book, all of that is a real encouragement. But what we really want to see is that the powers that be care. And maybe that's not something that is, is even worth aiming for. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, frankly, we just need to know that if they come after us, we have you. Yeah. We need to know because I feel so alone. Yeah. You know, yeah. we feel so alone. And we need to know. That if they come to us, people are going to defend us. Yeah. You know, people are going to stand up for the sheep. It's not just going to be our job. Yeah. Because um, we can't do it alone. We can't. And frankly, we've been fighting for everyone. And I just want someone to fight for us. <laughs> and I know that sounds a little bit selfish. 
Mm-hmm. But we've dedicated our whole lives. Like, I don't know. I've been mem- I've been thinking a lot about the idea of how like, whoever loses his life will find it. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't really know how to describe the psychological and mental anguish that we deal with with this job other than losing your life. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that we find it. But we don't really have a choice. And people are acting like we have a choice, but our only choice to to back down would be that we have to stop caring. And that's just not an option for us. So. And I am sorry that I got you into something that hurts you this much. (laughs) No, but it's, 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 it's good. Like, it's important. But anyway. I know, but I am sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this is too much for the podcast. This is too much for the podcast. But no, I think people need to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I just... It's important. This is really important. This is our life's work. Yeah. But it's not easy. No. And we are scared. But it, we had to do this. And uh, anyway, we just... We just appreciate your prayers and we appreciate your support and we just want people in our corner. Yeah. And maybe we'll just end it at that. Yeah, that sounds good.